Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon, Buddhas. Bodhisattvas. There's a story of um, a time when the Buddha was walking and somebody came to the Buddha and said to him, What are you? And the Buddha didn't answer. I mean, if someone said this to you, probably you wouldn't answer either. And then they said, uh, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no, I'm not a god. And he said, are you a spirit? The Buddha said, I'm not a spirit. Are you an animal? No. Are you from another world? No. Uh, are you a human? No. So then what are you, they asked. And he said, uh, I'd like to be remembered as one who is awake. And this is where he got the name Buddha from this story. Uh, the word uh, Buddha means awake. So uh, I hope that for all of us. <laughs> that uh, this is what we can contribute uh, to our families and to our communities and to ourselves is uh, this possibility of being awake. So uh, that's a way of saying that it means a lot to me that you're all here uh, because it's really important for my own practice because it wakes me up too uh, being in this practice position. <clears throat> um, so I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, many of you who are in this room uh, I hold very deep in my heart probably deeper than I have means of expressing. So uh, gathering here just feels like home for me. And uh, it was a really big year for me. And for some of you, it was a big year also. So uh, the fact that we're here together again, uh, many of you, especially the old timers. Are we old enough to be old timers yet? I don't know. Um, and for those of you who are new here, welcome. And uh, I'm, I'm really impressed that you're learning the new forms so quickly. Even though it might not feel like it. Uh, you are, I can, I can see it. Um, and, you know, I wonder how all this happened. How we all ended up here together doing this over New Year's. A lot of hard work and some luck and uh, a certain amount of distress. <laughs> uh, some awareness of how uh, 
unreliable things are, how unsatisfying so much of uh, uh, the stuff we can buy is. And I think it brings us here to, to want to be awake together. Also, we're living at a time where the world just seems bent on splitting itself. And the fact that we all want to come here and be together, I think, is really important. Our plant nations are suffering, and our animal nations are suffering. And it seems like we keep locking our first nations into asymmetrical relationships that are killing them and killing us at the same time. So I hope that even though it seems like you're sitting on your cushion healing for yourself, uh, we're also doing something that I hope is uh, of great service uh, to lots of different communities that may not be represented in this room. Not just the human communities. So, uh, some of you know His Holiness the Dalai Lama was just on a tour of Canada. And uh, at one of the stops in Vancouver, a high school student asked him a question and said to him, What's the most important thing in life? I love these questions. We're all so sophisticated, we could never ask a question like that, especially in front of other people. What's the most important thing in life? And His Holiness said, Well, if you're a teenager, the most important thing is to consider really deeply uh, what you want to do, how you want to serve, and what kind of work you want to do. And if you're in your 20s, the most important thing is to find somebody you love. (laughs) And then he said, And for everybody else, uh, the most important thing is to be awake. I wish somebody told me that (laughs) in high school. So uh, being awake starts right here in this practice. I'm sure all of you felt at some point uh, in the last 30 minutes or throughout the day how you've been asleep on the train of distraction, or on the train of uh, jealousy, or the train of uh, irritation. Have you heard the trains? (laughs) Yeah. And I really think that our mental health uh, is the beginning of uh, healing our planet and our hearts. And uh, Maybe this is the year to address mental health because uh, we lost so many good people this year. Philip Seymour Hoffman. I had a cold, and so in December I rented all his movies. And Robin Williams. So... uh, this, this year, I had a rough depression. And uh, when I heard the news of Robin Williams' death, it, it just sent me into a, a dive. 
I was pretty low, uh, some of you know. And uh, at one point, my partner Karina called my mom. And she said, I don't know what she said, actually. But apparently my mother said, oh, uh, it happens to everyone in the family. And it gets worse every 10 years. And I keep telling Michael, but he doesn't listen. So uh, everywhere I look in my uh, mother's side of my family, there's depression and suicide and mental illness. So um, when I was a young person, I thought, well, if I just meditate, I'll be fine. And actually, mostly it's been true. Um, but it seems like every few years it comes back and it gets worse, not better. And so uh, it becomes a really important opportunity to go back into the toolbox of uh, practice and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And this is true for all of us. Some of you don't struggle with depression. Maybe you struggle with something else. But whatever it is that you struggle with, most of it's not really that personal. It comes from genetics. It comes from a culture that is so anxious. It comes from so many issues that are beyond uh, just you. Just like the weather. And yet, we have to have tools to heal. And the healing has to come uh, from this place of uh, um, trust and also reverence. Being able to have some reverence for what it is that's moving through us. And maybe that's the reason why there's so much bowing in this practice. When you bow, uh, the bowing is all about reverence. We bow to each other because it's really hard to have reverence for other people. And we bow to our cushion because that's us. You're bowing to yourself. I remember when I was in Japan, I went on a long hike uh, through some mountains outside of Kyoto. And... uh, one of the hikes takes you down to this temple, up to this temple. And when I got there, I really had to pee. So I asked for the bathroom. Nobody spoke any English. And it was too beautiful there to go pee on a tree. So I I checked around. And then I noticed these stairs going down, down deep uh, into the mountain. So I went down the stairs. And then I got down to the bottom, and there was candlelight. It was amazing. So I went down these long hallways with candles, and then I noticed the walls weren't walls. They were stacks or or shelves and shelves of thousands of small urns with calligraphy on them. And this was the basement of the temple where they kept the ashes of the dead. And I walked to the end of this hallway, and there was an altar. And if any of you have ever spent time in Japan or in many places in Asia... When you have an altar, you never see the face of the Buddha. There's always uh, uh, some textile in the way so that you have to bow. And then as you're bowing and you look up, then you see the face of the Buddha. So it's never head on. So um, usually you offer some incense, and as you offer incense, you bow. So uh, that's what I did. 
I forgot I had to pee. <laughs> and uh, so I offered some incense and I bowed. And when I bowed and I looked up, on the altar there was no Buddha, it was a mirror. So as I looked up, it was me. <laughs> and I laughed and cried at the same time. Do you know that feeling? That feeling of just uh, being so in your own experience that it has nothing to do with you. Most of the time in our meditation practice, we're so focused on the object, the object, the object, that we feel so much like a subject all the time. We're focusing on this and that, which makes me feel like a self that's having the experience. That's not reverence. So reverence is when we have a mind that can meet what's arising uh, at the same level as what's arising. Not from a distance. Um, In Zen, this is called original mind. But I like to think of this as the mind that we're all born with as kids. We're all born with this mind before it gets educated out of us. Um, I saw an exhibit this year uh, in England uh, at the Tate of a wonderful photographer named Nan Golden, who's an American photographer. I think she lives in New York and in Berlin. And um, I I, I don't know that much about photography, but she was famous for uh, creating portraits where she used the light that was available and some really interesting portraits. Anyways, this show was all uh, photographs of kids uh, doing the strangest things. And uh, I wanted to read part of the interview about this uh, project. Uh, She says, um, My work always comes from empathy and love. I can't photograph someone out of anger. I only photograph people who touch me in some way. Lately, I became curious about why we don't remember anything before we're three or four years old. Then it linked me to this idea that really kids are from another planet. (laughs) Then she tells the story about she heard a four-year-old go say to his baby brother, "Um, do you remember God? Because I'm beginning to forget. (laughs) So she goes on in this interview. Babies come from somewhere else. Just look at them. (laughs) And all her photographs of the babies make them all look like aliens. Kids are a lot closer to where we come from. They are a lot closer to where we come from and where we go. But they are taught to forget this. You can see this in the sexuality of children. The sexuality of children and their androgyny really interests me. One of my godchildren lived seven years as a boy. She had a library card as a boy, went to school as a boy, totally changed her identity. And then, at 14, she became a girl. In the ideal world, I think you wouldn't know the gender of someone until they took off their clothes. 
last thing she says in this interview, kids are so beautiful, they break my heart. They're so beautiful. I don't see adults very often in the completely unmitigated state of joy. Isn't that true? We're so defended. We're so uh, committed to our place. So, in Zen, there's a saying, don't be a needle stuck on the scale. Can you picture a scale, the needle stuck, everything weighs the same? And I think this is also a lesson for the experienced students in the room, which is, uh, don't, don't trust your idea about what you think this practice is about. Maybe you've come on retreat and you know the place and you know the routine, Don't lose your original mind. When you sit and you really drop in, uh, your body's not there anymore. You're just sitting with sensations and awareness. Your gender is not important when you're sitting. Your age is not a factor when you're sitting. So just coming back again to this mind... That's the mind that we're all born with. It's so important. Because you don't know how you're going to be needed to serve. You don't know the trajectory of your body. You don't know how your family might need you. So we have to be able to bow. Some of you are overbowing. Is there such a term? Yeah. So I have to say that bowing is the hardest practice. It's so hard to be able to let go and bow in a way where you're in your original mind. If you look for your original mind, you can't find it. If you look for it, it goes dim. And if you try and listen for it, it goes mute. Because it's just what's happening right now. It's not somewhere else. Just this. So easy to miss. This lineage of this building we're in goes back to uh, Rinzai. And uh, <clears throat> he had a teacher named Obaku. And uh, there's a story where um, someone says to Obaku, uh, Master, you always tell us not to expect anything from the three treasures. For those of you who don't know, the three treasures are the Buddha, which is awakening, uh, the Dharma, which is everything we awaken to, and Sangha, community. And the student says, you always say, don't expect anything from Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. But you always bow so deeply. So why do you bow so deeply? 
And apparently he bowed so deeply that he had calluses on his forehead. (laughs) And his response was, when I bow, I don't expect anything. So how can you have the courage when uh, you're sitting and your mind is so busy to just bow down to that busyness and don't expect anything? It's only a bothersome if you have an idea that your mind is not supposed to be busy. So you just open up the awareness and there's just a busy mind. It's okay. But if you're on top of that busy mind trying to tie it down, you're going to sit there and suffer like crazy. And you don't suffer in your mind, just suffer in your body. A psychoanalyst, Adam Phillips, says, symptoms are thinking with the sound turned off. And you can really feel that when you're sitting, can't you? So, how do we have reverence for whatever's showing up for us? Some of you have a story about what's coming up for you. Like maybe what's coming up is that there is a decision you have to make in your life. And you keep going over it and going over it and going over it. And if you do that, the whole retreat, you will be in exactly the same place you started. Because you're trying to solve it from the top down. So how can you just bow to the question, what am I supposed to do? And just leave it alone. And go out into the lightly falling snow, go out into the forest, feel the layers and layers of leaves. And just let these stories drop away. And this is where the practice that we do here is slightly different than the practice that you find in Vipassana in most Tibetan traditions. We have a slightly different take on practice, which is that when you sit, we're not sitting to get anywhere. We're not trying to concentrate to reach something. We're not trying to still our minds to feel something. So in this form of practice, which is influenced by Dogen, the basic idea is the whole fruition of all of practice is in each moment. The fruition of the whole path of your practice is in this moment, and you can't hold on to it. So maybe some of you came here in the summer retreat and had some really deep experiences. And when you came into this building, you thought, oh yeah, I'm going to be there again. And it's not the same. Or maybe today your first day has been pretty rough. Well, it might be completely different tonight. So, another story about waking up. 
This is from... Uh, this is a great story because it's a story about a teacher who asks himself the question and answers the question. There's not very many like that. Uh, it's a teacher named Yunmen, and he says to himself, um, What's your light? This is the question he asks himself. What's your light? If you look for it, you can't find it. What's your light? And then, uh, years later, they don't say anything about how many years, but Mm -hmm. years later, he finally answers this question, and he writes it down for the record. And his response is, the kitchen pantry and the gate. (laughs) The kitchen pantry and the gate. So this is that spirit that I'm talking about, of how the fruition of the practice is reverence for this moment, and just this moment, and not holding on to it. What's your light? That's like saying, what's the meaning of life? And all of us, you know, we're so busy watching the movie of me. It's almost tragic that we completely miss our life. So what's your light? Well, your light is what's happening right now. And how do you find it? It's in the kitchen pantry. When you're in the kitchen pantry. It's in your socks when you're putting them on. It's at the gate. It's in the snow. Or maybe it's right here and you're missing it right now because you're wondering what your light is. (laughs) So this is the same question that this high school student has. What's the most important thing in life? the same question that was asked by a student of the Buddha. Who are you? What are you? In a way, when we sit on our cushion, we're asking this question. But it's hard to look at because we have so much habit in how we conceive of ourselves that for the first few days sitting here, all you're doing, I say watch the breath, but all you're watching is how you can't watch your breath. (laughs) Plus, the brain has a real bias to the negative. You notice this? So when I was uh, struggling this year, uh, feeling down, I decided I would start reading more neuroscience. And um, maybe that's why neuroscience is so popular, because people don't know what to turn to. And... uh, So I've been really interested in in the research popularized by a guy named Rick Hansen um, around the negativity bias of the brain, which is that according to evolutionary psychology, um, our brains are designed to focus on the negative because we learn quicker from negative experiences. So if you stub your toe on something, you learn very quickly not to walk that way near whatever you stubbed your toe on. Or if you you quickly burn your hand, you learn very quickly, I won't do that again. 
And we don't learn that quickly from positive experiences. We're designed as humans to, to learn very, very fast from negative experiences. And according to brain science, the way this works is in order to learn something, you have to take a state of mind and hold it in your awareness for long enough that it turns into a trait. This is called learning, right? It's how you take a state and turn it into a trait. And the science of it is really interesting, is that you have these, what they call short-term memory buffers, which are like holding tanks. And when a mind state goes into the memory buffer, it has to stay there for 10 seconds in order to be, uh, in order to translate into structure, into learning. Okay. Well, if you look at your mind in meditation, you can see that the stuff you hold for 10 seconds tends to be the negative material. Have you noticed that? And when you have a positive experience, like for example, I'm talking right now. And if I say anything you don't like, you'll really focus on it. Like, I don't like that thing he said. (laughs) But if your body just feels fine, you won't focus on that. If your digestion's going okay, you won't focus on it. If you feel safe in this space, you won't focus on it. But if there's one thing here that makes you feel unsafe, you're going to focus on it. So the science of it also says that when you take a positive experience, a positive mental state, like noticing you're healthy, and you put it in the short-term memory buffer, it doesn't become structured in terms of your, of your brain. It doesn't, be, doesn't become a structure of your brain unless it's there for 10 seconds. But a positive experience has to stay there for the whole 10 seconds. And studies show that when someone has a positive experience, they're looking for the next positive experience right away. And the next positive experience literally dislodges the previous positive experience before the 10 seconds is up. So then this keeps reinforcing the negativity bias. And then if you add to that a culture that has so much selfing, that is so consumed with the story of me, you start to see this mixture of negative self-esteem, negative self-image, and this natural bias in the brain to stay focused on that. So one of the reasons why this practice is so important that we're doing, one of the reasons, is because we learn how to have reverence for every moment. We can bow to every moment, and every moment is equal to the next moment. You see? And when the negativity train starts, we see it, come back to the breath. And you'll see over a couple days, you'll be able to come back much more easily. It'll just be much more natural. And then you stop reinforcing those trains. In the 1940s, there was a Canadian named Donald Hebb who said, neurons that fire together wire together. Nowadays, that's like the coolest thing to say. So I just like saying it. But it's really true. 
So in some ways, this practice is a training. And in other ways, the punchline is the training is just for this moment. So if there's a way that you've been telling a story about why you're here or what you need to work out, let's just put that aside. And let's try to have a little more reverence for what's actually going on, whether that's positive or whether that's negative. And then, I don't know if there's such thing as a positivity callus, but maybe the retreat will end and we'll all have a positivity callus. We'll be so worn out. Not that we're all supposed to be positive people, but I think we can all be a little more positive. <laughs> now, Lao Tzu said, if you leave a little twig in your heart, a singing bird will come. So when we make some space in our experience, just coming back to the breath again and again and again, we're just putting a little twig in our heart. And a singing bird will come. And for those of you who've done retreat for many years, you know that it comes when you least expect it. If you sit on your cushion thinking, he said, if I put a twig, (laughs) a little bird will come, and I don't see a little bird then you've got into the negativity train. We all have a light. And when you look for it, you can't see it. And when you try and listen to it, you can't hear it. This question that Yunmin has, what is your light? It's a great question. Um, one commentator uh, wrote about this in the 16th century, uh, and his response was, don't eat with your nose. <laughs> don't eat with your nose. Don't get lost down the wrong track. You don't have to keep looking for a meaning for everything. During walking meditation, just walk. And feel, feel what happens when you walk. Slow or fast, it doesn't matter. And when you sit, just sit. First start by feeling your breathing, get settled. And then once in a while, you'll feel that your breath is settled, And you can just open your awareness. Just open your awareness. It's interesting when you open your awareness. Because we're always focused on objects. Oh, my anger, my anxiety, and so on. But awareness doesn't have a quality, really. Like, if I ask you right now to be aware of being aware... 
and I ask you how old your awareness is. Or I ask you how big awareness is. Or I ask you what it smells like. It doesn't seem to have these kind of qualities. And that's the mind that we're all born with. That's the mind that Nan Golden is trying to photograph. That's your light. But you can't look for it. Because as soon as you look for it, you turn awareness into an object. And maybe the, the non-quality of awareness is the birth of religion. Because we want to give that a name. Everybody wants to brand it. And this tradition's really skeptical about that. So, sometimes, bow to the object. Bow to what's arising. Or as we say nowadays, what's coming up. Bow to what's coming up by letting go of what you're holding on to. So you can have a deeper reverence for what's arising. And then maybe sometimes... Bow to awareness. Just the awareness. Doesn't seem to have a shape. That's an interesting direction to explore. And that direction seems to upend the tendency to always go to the negative. I hope this map makes sense. And then, a little bird might come straight into your heart. So, I said yesterday, the form is new for some of you. Um, I encourage you uh, to have some reverence for the form. I think I fought form for at least 10 years, and I think I wasted a lot of time. Oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. Okay, fine. You don't like everything. But if you feel relatively safe in this space, see if you can switch gears and let the form hold you a little more. The bells are here to support you. Different practice positions are here to support you. The bowing can support you too. When you bow to another person, you can have some reverence. When you bow to your cushion, you're bowing to your own Buddha nature which is just your light in this moment, and it changes. Don't hold on to it.
last thing I'll say is that when you're involved in a practice, you know it's working when it creates questions for you. And uh, those questions uh, need a response. We're so busy uh, always trying to get answers for everything. But you know your practice works when it starts opening you up to deeper questions. And those questions want responses, which is a code word for your life, your response. And those responses um, deepen your relationships with yourself and others. So that's how bowing works. When you bow with your whole heart, uh, when you come back to your breathing with your whole heart, when you're mindful of any mental state with everything you've got, then deeper questions will show up that require deeper responses. And in an age of Instagram, and Twitter, uh, being in a place and engaging a practice that has depth is so precious. I think our culture is so hungry for depth. Two thousand fifteen means that I've had a daily practice now for exactly twenty years. I started in January uh, 1995. I said, I'm going to practice every day. So I want to encourage you to keep going. Uh, It really gets better. Even though, as my mother says, it gets worse every decade. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 